If you are kind of just jumping in, we are wrapping up our series on our Christmas series for this year called Fear Not, Your Purpose is on the Other Side. And what I love about this, we call it the Christmas season, but it's more formally and traditionally known as the Advent season. And this word Advent translates to arrival, and more notably, expectant arrival of a notable person. And so for, for centuries and centuries and centuries, the Israelites would be expecting their Messiah to come and save them, their Savior. And they were leaning into the arrival. The Israelites, they had experienced slavery, oppression, wars, battles, suffering. And a lot of their pain was caused from their own sin, chasing after idolatry, chasing after lust and sexual immorality, and wealth, and riches, and putting their name above God's name. And so then what you have happen is this experience where the Israelites, God's chosen people, who were then in this season of weariness and pain and suffering, expecting the arrival of their Savior. And here's what I love so much about the Advent season and about the Christmas season, is that it is a season filled with all of the different emotions. You've got people who are excited and rejoicing and joyful and happy. And at the same time, you have people who are equally um, suffering and experiencing pain and grief and mental illness. And we can all come together and just be. I love that. And friends, this year for so many Crossbridgers was filled with weariness and pain and grief and loss and a lot of our, um, some of our core people dealing with some very trying, you know, health diagnosis and, you know, pain. And we had so many losses as a church, uh, you know, and grief was heavy. But at the same time, there was so much victory. And there were so many good moments that happened. Our baptism service was one of our greatest services. We had so many exciting events, so many new people who have joined our community. We've had lives touched, lives transformed, salvations have happened, and people have taken next steps, and it's been a really great year at the same time. And that's kind of been the beauty of this Christmas season, is we come together with the weariness and the pain, and it's equally matched by the rejoicing and the exciting things, regardless of what stage of life you're at, we get to come together and worship. And I love that about the church. Because here's what's cool about the Advent season. Just because Jesus' first coming has happened, doesn't mean Advent is over. As Christ followers, we are still hopeful of the second coming of Jesus. The first coming was to conquer death, to conquer sin. The second coming is to establish eternal life for those who have called on the name of Jesus. And so that is why we, we're, in our weariness, we still rejoice. And throughout this series, this Christmas series, and really kind of every Christmas series um, that we do and that every church does around the world is to prepare our hearts for Jesus. For Jesus is coming to say, you know what? There's something greater than us who is here dwelling among us. And it's so important for us to reshape our focus and recenter our focus back onto Jesus. And I know that, I mean, there's people here um, who may not believe in Jesus. There's people here who are new Christ followers. There's people here who are just trying to figure it out. And you're welcome. And you're safe. 
and we're excited to have you. We're going to stretch you. We're going to challenge you, and we're going to push you to take next steps. And that's what we want to do with this last week of Fear Not. Your purpose is on the other side. Brad kicked off this Christmas series a couple weeks ago talking about um, the angel approaching Mary, this young teenage girl, and saying, you are going to be the mother of the Messiah and completely just radically shifted her world. Radically changed maybe perhaps what her own dreams were. I was listening to a, a, a pastor, Rich Velotis, one of my favorite pastors to, to listen to, a, a pastor in, in, uh, in Queens, New York. And he was talking about this concept of what would it look like for you to sacrifice and lay down your own plans for your life for God's plans. It's okay to have dreams and visions, but what if God has something different? And can you imagine Mary in that moment whose world was radically changed as she was called to become the mother of Jesus? she says, your will be done. And then last week, I took us back hundreds and hundreds of years to the life of David in the, in the Old Testament and walked us through the different life of David and how he had to experience the gritty work, the grungy work, a lot of pain, a lot of suffering. He had received his anointing, his calling very early on, and then it was years and years and years before he actually got to experience the fruitfulness of his calling. And throughout this series, and really this year, we've talked about these two words, purpose and calling. And so many humans walk through and wrestle and struggle with those words, but you don't have to. As Christ followers, we all know our purpose. We know why we are here. Three things, love God, love people, and then use our life to glorify God. That is our why. Our calling is what we uniquely and individually were created to do to achieve that purpose, to live out that purpose. It's the what to the why. And that, I think, is where so many people get hung up, where so many people stress or struggle. And here's honestly the reason why, is a lot of times, most of the time, it's because our purpose and our calling are on the other side of fear. And you have to step through your fear to experience them. We're going to walk through and wrap that up today, and that's kind of been this entire series. But the title of the message today is The Good Shepherd. We're going to end this series walking through another prophecy in Micah, and then jump to the Gospel of John, and then jump back to the Psalms. And there's going to be a lot of scripture, and my hope is just to encourage you that even if you are in a valley, or if you are in the pastures, or on the mountaintop, that we have a good shepherd guiding us. So let's pray. Holy Father, thank you so much for shepherding us, for caring for us, for guiding us, for challenging us, for convicting us to lay down our lives for you. We are seeking to get to a point where we truly believe that your will for us is greater than ours, that your plan for us is better than ours. And so we lift you up and we lay ourselves down. In your name I pray. Everyone said, amen.
Amen. Well, hey, turn with me to Micah chapter 5. Okay, Micah is one of the 12 minor prophets. This is in the Old Testament. And these first five verses from Micah's prophecy is what we're going to be focusing on. Micah, as a prophet, would go to Israel or different areas, or he would write different um, on different tablets or, or different letters, have scribes send them out, and he would proclaim what is to come. He was to proclaim what is to come, to prophesy about what is to come. So we have this really powerful Christmas prophecy, Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. This is what Micah proclaims. He says this, marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. And then verse 5. And he will be our peace. When the Assyrians invade our land and march through our fortresses, we will raise against them seven shepherds, even eight commanders. There's a lot that Micah's prophesying there, and I want to break it down verse by verse. We're going to walk through a lot of information about this specific prophecy, because when we have this deeper understanding of what Micah's saying and the, the references he's making, and even just understanding what certain words mean, it just will blow you away. It just opens our eyes. I want to start right here in verse 2 of Micah 5. He says, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, okay, Bethlehem is obviously where Jesus was born, but the word Bethlehem literally translates to house of bread. That's what Bethlehem means. Why is that significant? In John chapter 6, Jesus takes on the title, I am the bread of life. All who come to me will never go hungry and will never thirst again. Isn't that cool? Jesus comes out of the town, of the little town of Bethlehem, the bread of life, the house of bread, and then he takes that on. And has so much deeper meaning when Jesus says it. But then the very next part says that out of the smallest of clans. You see, Bethlehem, there was nothing showy. Nothing fashionable about Bethlehem. There were so many greater nations or tribes of Judah, of the 12 tribes of Israel, that Jesus could have and even should have arose from. And we know that after Bethlehem, then Jesus goes to Egypt, and then he is transported with his family and grows up in Nazareth. And when Jesus is calling his disciples, there's a disciple who's sitting there at his tree, and Jesus comes, uh, and his brother comes and says, hey, there's this Jesus guy. Let's go follow him. He's from Nazareth. And, and the disciple says, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Like, this is who Jesus was. This is what he came from. Just the lowest of lows to do the highest of highs. Later on in verse 2, it says, Out of you will come from me one who will be ruler over Israel, but don't miss this part, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. 
Here's what that verse means. Friends, just because Jesus took on human flesh doesn't mean that he was created at Christmas time. Jesus has always been, has always survived, lived, been created before what was, before what is. He just took on human flesh. Jesus is God. Took on human flesh to walk among us. Actually, many Christian scholars believe that when the Old Testament refers to the angel of the Lord, when the angel of the Lord approached X, X, Y, or Z, if if you read the, the Old Testament and you see that language, many Christian scholars believe that was Jesus. Okay, when, it, when it's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the furnace, and then there was a fourth, there was an angel in there with them. Many Christian scholars believe that was Jesus. And so Jesus has always been. And so what this verse is saying is from origins of old. It's like, friends, Micah, Micah's saying, this is, the, this, is the, this is the Lord of old. He's not just being, going to be created in Bethlehem. He's not this new creation. He was and he is and he is to come. Therefore, verse 3, will be abandoned. Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son. This abandonment we talked about last week. Israel will be abandoned where there will be the silence from God for 400 years between Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. 400 years then separates from Malachi, the last words of God, until Jesus is born. In the Gospels that we have recorded. Really powerful stuff that Micah is proclaiming. But he says this in verse 4. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. He will shepherd his flock. And that's why John 10, Jesus takes on another title. He says this. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. And my sheep know me. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. And so as I read that verse, and I was thinking about that verse, it sparked in this question, because I knew kind of a direction I wanted to go, but it sparked in this question, what was so significant about being a shepherd? Because you see all throughout the Old Testament and the Hebrew Bible, you see verse after verse referencing, I mean, it obviously was a job title. Okay, but there was so much a part of this job title that we don't, in America, fully grasp because there's really not too many shepherds left. We have a lot of farmers, okay, but you have to go over to the eastern world or even down south um, to really see shepherds still tending their flock. Okay? And so I did a ton of research of what was it like to be a shepherd in Jesus' time because I wanted to have a full understanding, a full understanding of this label. So here's a few things that I learned. First and foremost is that the shepherd in the family was more times than not the youngest boy in the family. We saw this with the life of David. And here's what would happen is after another son was born, then the son would pass on their duties once they were old enough, okay, pass on their duties to the youngest son, the youngest brother, to carry on the shepherding job. And then the elder brother would go and help his father, either in the fields, at the house, building things, constructing things, hunting, etc. whatever the case may be, but they would pass on the shepherd. So it was often a lot of younger people, a lot of younger boys specifically. Shepherds were extremely dirty, 
unclean. It was grungy work. You would be out in the fields all day. You would be out in the pastures all day. You would do the work that nobody wanted to do. And so as a result, shepherds were more often than not not allowed into the temple because they were unclean. They were castaways. They were outsiders. These young boys were not allowed anywhere near God's people. Per the Levitical law, the, ex- the laws in Exodus that we see. And so with all of that in mind, how powerful is it then, once again, we're going to read next week on our Christmas Eve services, hashtag add 3 o'clock, 4.30, and 6 o'clock. And 6 o'clock is our pajama service next Saturday. We're going to read all through the story, and when, when the angels appear to the, the shepherds, you've got angels appearing to a bunch of young teenage boys who are stinky and smelly and unclean that nobody wants to be around. And they tell them, before you a child is born, go see this thing that Jesus is and that God has done. But what did the job title look like? So what they would have to do is they would be in charge of protecting and nourishing and shearing and keeping the sheep and any of the other flock, the animals, the cattle that were a part of the family's household. It could be hundreds, hundreds, thousands of sheep depending on how wealthy that the family was. We see this with the life of Job. Job owned thousands and thousands and thousands of different animals. Really fascinating. And so often one, maybe two shepherds, but one young boy in charge of this entire flock, he had to be courageous, he had to be fierce, he had to be ready to go because there would be wild animals on the loose. You'd have lions. David, we talked about this last week, David flexed on King Saul saying, I have fought lions and tigers, and bears, and thank you, I got no my. There we go. I have to fight them off. And so how do they do that? Well, we saw actually in this last passage, talked about the rod. And you might have seen this language used, the rod and, 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 and the staff, which we're going to read in, in Psalm here in a bit. But it, what exactly was a rod? Well, this is how the shepherds, they would carry it around. This is what they would use to protect their sheep. And a rod, to make it more in modern context, Think of like a police club or a securities guard club with nails sticking out. And so that was a way that they would have a weapon to be able to protect against any thieves or any wild animals that would try to hurt their sheep. It was their job to protect the sheep. It was their job to nurse the sheep. It was their job to shear the sheep, to protect and to guide and to navigate. And that's the last part I want to focus on because it's so important. Shepherds had a staff. And the reason for their staff, they didn't have border collies running around, okay, that we see a lot of farmlands have today. Okay, it's actually really fascinating. If you Google like a border collie tending to the sheep and guiding the sheep, that was the role of the shepherd. And so what the shepherd would do is they'd have their staff and they would go and they would smack the sheep on the behind. They would get them going where they wanted to go. They would, they'd be considered sheep tenders, okay? So if you've ever wondered where chicken tenders came from, <laughs> I said that first service. That was the Holy Spirit. I'm like, I'm going to say it second service. I'm going to laugh at myself whether anyone else. I'm glad some of you think I'm as funny as I think I am. Or I just am funny looking. And so anyway, they would literally like go and they would have to 
go from in a U circle to try to keep the sheep in the way that they wanted them to go. They would gently push and gently prod, and they would sometimes smack them upside the head to keep them. Think the Lion King with um, uh, Rafiki, and you got you. They would smack them. Okay, that is what it was like. They would push them and guide them through the valleys and through the pastures. And with all of that understanding, now let's turn to Psalm 23. One of the most famous psalms in all of Scripture because this just makes this Scripture so much more powerful when you understand David who wrote this as a shepherd and the language he uses and why it's so significant. Psalm 23, many of you will recognize it as soon as I start. Here's what David writes. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. Other translations say I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right path for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and your love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What shepherding language we have there. He talks about the rod, the protection. He talks about the staff, the guidance. He talks about the table before my enemies, the nourishment that the shepherd were supposed to provide for the sheep. What a powerful psalm that David is literally pulling from his own life. Say, this is God. He is my protector. He is my navigator. He is my healer. He is my strength. He is my guide. Even in the valley. Because you see here, friends, as sheep, and this is the research, this isn't my language. I mean, maybe you have some sheep at home. They're not thought of as the most intelligent animals, okay? And if we're the sheep, God's the shepherd, you make the connection. I'm not going to say it, okay? You just make the connection. But perhaps when God is pushing prodding us in the direction he knows we should go and it requires some smacks upside the head and maybe a little pain and a little suffering. I mean, friends, I'm not gonna say it. Let's just make the connection. Let's think about all the other areas in our life. If you wanna become stronger, what do you do? You put your body through intense workouts. If you want diamonds, what do you do? You put them through intense pressure. If you want wine, I'm not gonna say it. Hey, we're at a church, not going to say it. But if you want some wine, if you're, if you're grieving the Colts' victory or, well, loss, but if you're grieving that, you have to crush the grapes. You have to crush the olives, okay? There's a crushing and a suffering and a pressure that happens in so many areas of our lives. It's a natural part of growth and a natural part of experiencing what's on the other side. So it makes sense why God does the same with us, why there's pain, why there's suffering. And don't get me wrong, most of our pain and our suffering comes as a result of sin. There's also pain and suffering that we go through to experience growth and strength. And as we see in Romans 8, all of our pain and suffering can be used for God's glory. As he leads us in the way that he wants us 
to go. His most intelligent sheep. And so here's the question that I want to kind of end with and lead us into is, what does it mean that Jesus is our good shepherd? With all of that in mind, what does that mean for us today? Well, first off, it means you're never alone. It means that even when you are in your darkest moments, you have a Savior. It means that we have this hope as Christ followers when we're experiencing loss, when we're experiencing things that are unfair, when we are experiencing pain, when our job is just awful, when we are experiencing mental illness, when there are things going on in our family, when our marriages are shaken, when our singleness feels lonely, when we are struggling with church baggage, church trauma, healing from different areas, that we are not alone. It also means that we have somebody who is willing to push us farther than we are willing to go. Here's the reality, friends. 99% of our life is holding on to control. 1% of it is giving it back to God. And that's why there's so much tension because sin is constantly trying to grasp us and to shackle us to this world. But this world is not our home. That's why Jesus is the good shepherd. Because he is trying so desperately to guide us and protect us. David writes this in Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, and don't forget these words, even then I will be confident. Even then I will be confident. What a powerful reminder. And friends, here's the reality. Here's just some encouragement. Let me phrase it that way. You don't have to have it all together. You don't have to have it all figured out. You don't have to know what the future looks like. You don't have to be strong here or there. You don't have to be that type of person that has the perfect response every time. The hope is that you wake up every day saying, you know what, God? I don't know what today looks like, but you do. I don't know what my purpose looks like, but you do. I don't have strength for this, but you do. I don't have confidence today, but you do. That's the hope, is that you get to a place where you say, even though I don't have all of it figured out, I trust in someone who does. So here's how I want to close today. I want to share this idea that kind of was placed on my heart this week as we kind of wrap up this series. And it's something I've really been thinking about. It's this, is friends, one of the greatest pastimes of Satan is to watch God's children submit to fear. One of his greatest pleasures is to drop just a little ounce of temptation, a little bit of pain, 
a little bit of fear and just sit back and watch humanity destroy themselves. Or run away from their calling. Or run away from their purpose. And what I wanted to do, it would have been easy for me to just say, hey, like, to end by just saying, hey, so what's your greatest fear? Because if I ask the question, why, what's your calling? I bet only 20% of the people here would know. And that's okay. It's a much more intimidating question asking that. If I ask what's your greatest fear, I bet everyone would be able to name their greatest fear. And so I want you to be thinking about that. But rather than just ending on that, I want to be a little vulnerable. Because I want you to know that pastors have greatest fears too. So I want to share some of my greatest fears. Because often what happens, and, and maybe, it, maybe it's just because we're up here, we're no different than you at all. We struggle, we suffer, we lose loved ones, we battle mental illness, we walk through deep questions, we question things, we challenge things, we wrestle with, with the scriptures, we struggle, we, we spend time in prayer, and we also spend days without prayer. Sometimes there's go, weeks that go by and we're like, wow, we haven't spent time with God. We're just like you. So I wanted to share a few of my fears. Probably my greatest fear is the fear of loss. I have a fear of not being liked, which has led to a lot of insecurities. I have a fear of not being good enough. I have a huge fear of making mistakes, which has led to me overworking at times, putting my family on hold. Probably one of my biggest fears is, will I always feel this way? Whether it's with mental illness, struggling with anxiety, depression, suicide ideation. Those are just my fears. And there have been so many times over the last five, almost five years here on staff that those fears have stopped me from living out my purpose and my calling, have kept me up at night, and have required a lot of prayer and a lot of healthy living just to stay the healthiest version of myself. I share all of that to say that pastors struggle too. But we also get really excited and we make corny jokes because what fills us up the most is seeing God's sheep take next steps. And it is so worth the fight and the struggle and the pain that we experience trying to keep ourselves healthy for this community to watch you all take next steps. Don't let Satan win. Will you pray with me? Holy Father. You are so good. You are the good shepherd. You mother us with your kindness and your strength. You father us with your gentleness and your patience 
and you lead us with conviction and with truth. Guiding us in the way we should go. Pushing and prodding and sometimes smacking us upside the head. And God, you welcome us to the table. We give our lives to you. In your name I pray.